Welcome to Yo Today. I'm Paul Pepps, Director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is Raul Lievenos, Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of Oregon. He's an affiliated faculty member in the Departments of Environmental Studies and Indigenous Race and Ethnic Studies. Professor Lievenos is also a research affiliate with the Center for Studies in Demography and Ecology at the University of Washington. His interests include environment, health, and risk, urban sociology, race, ethnicity, and immigration, organizations and institutions, social movements, spatial pattern analysis, and geographic information systems, historic, historical art of sociology, and qualitative methods. Thanks so much, Raul, for coming on the show. It's a pleasure to have you with us. So tell us a little bit about your background. Um, well, um, in terms of um, my interests in sociology really stem from my background. That's something I uh, share with my students a lot. Um, this in spring quarter 2022, I was uh, teaching social, social inequality. And that's something that, um, you know, is a kind of a, a lower division entry level kind of class into thinking about power and inequality. Um, kind of emphasize how right, uh, aspects of our social location and, you know, where we're situated in relation to others um, can uh, see influence how we see the world and the types of careers we pursue and interests we have. And um, so one thing I share with the students and they end up writing a, a paper is kind of think about their pathways uh, to the university and uh, much of what they what comes out of that kind of paper is they often emphasize um, well, I ask them to kind of think about you know the, the kind of family and education um, experiences they had and how they're socialized and you know, with the, into having a certain kind of value system, but also resource-based to kind of pursue things. And, um, and, um, and one, one thing that comes light in sharing what I try to do with students is kind of give examples to share some of my background um, in that regard. And um, I think the things, you know, that my interests as you outline them, and um, I have a lot of interests, and so I appreciate you <laughs> reading those all out. Um, uh, that really stems from a uh, really early kind of interest in um, questions of justice and um, and also being um, kind of multiracial background and thinking about early on about race like uh, my my parents um, uh, and, and my dad's grew up in working class Mexican American community in um, Tucson Arizona my mom um, let's say middle upper class uh, kind of uh, northwestern European background in New England and California and um, they come from two different worlds and um, and it was you know growing up it was really relevant for me just very different kind of family experiences and also kind of questions about belonging really came up a lot and you know whether it be me being younger and kind of <laughs> I always get the story of you know putting my my kind of tan arm between my father's arm who's much more darker complected um, and versus my mom who's more fair skin um, and just kind of thinking about okay where do I fit in this and um, so that um, that I had that kind of those experiences the kind of ideas you know um, reflections early on and as I grew up um, I you know got to you know um, grew up in the, uh, started paying attention more to news in the 90s and whether it be, you know, police brutality and seeing that um, Rodney King um, and what we're observing in the early 90s in Los Angeles and elsewhere. And, um, and thinking about that and kind of these questions posing my dad, who was a police officer for quite some time, but who was also working in a, um, 
a community that's been well documented. There's been sociologists talk that have spoken about San Marino, California, where I grew up and the types of inequalities and how Mexican Americans are viewed there. And so he had an interesting positionality, I think, um, you know, kind of being a police officer and both kind of being community oriented and solving kind of problems within the community, but also working with Mexican American population that was often being, you know, one could argue kind of over policed. And so, so it was kind of, you know, those kind of questions talking with him and think, and kind of, okay, well, I also remember you telling me dad about being a Chicano movement in college, right? So how do you square it? You know, so those kind of questions we had a lot and my mom's side as well. Um, her uh, dad was a Unitarian minister who really um, emphasized civil rights and um, there's stories, family stories about him um, marching civil rights movements, protests and those kind of things. And, um, and uh, my grandma, my mom's mom being uh, interested in that, my mom really interested in women's rights. And so um, it just kind of, those kind of, those discussions were really relevant for me. And um, I think as, um, I kind of had that background. Um, I also really liked sports and I was a very active kid. And so um, I played a lot of baseball um, all the way through college. And I think and there, uh, there's a recent um, you know, story in the, uh, around the UO that kind of talked more about that. But um, uh, um, I had a, my pathway kind of take me through community college first, which those again baseball related because I, I wanted to go to some universities and got it and in, gotten into some out of high school but went to the community college route and that was again for me to kind of develop more of uh, my baseball skills but because I was kind of thin and short and thin short catchers uh, um, weren't as sought after um, uh, by scouts and so I was kind of told to you know, kind of go and, and develop and grow more <laughs> um, but at the same time, I grew, I think, um, uh, in terms of thinking more about sociology. And so we didn't, you know, we had social sciences and um, or social studies and history and economics and political science and those kind of things and government in high school. But I started taking sociology classes and, and that really resonated with kind of, um, you know, kind of critical perspectives on the world and, and inequalities and privilege as well. Um, and race and kind of questions about community and belonging. And so that I, I really enjoyed those classes and then went on to transfer to Fresno State. And um, I shared the, the um, again with my undergraduate students that I work with a lot here of, who, you know, folks who are kind of trying to figure out their pathway um, and how things that you might encounter in sociology will resonate with you. And you may not know that kind of, that that might be the case. And I literally, within, um, academic advisor sitting in the student athlete um, office at Fresno State and my econ and government kind of business classes uh, that I'd taken wouldn't allow they wouldn't transfer and so I um, to be eligible I needed to pick another social science degree um, pathway and I literally closed my eyes and landed on sociology and I'm, I'm glad that I did um, uh, it's kind of funny that that happened um, and I was like, yeah, I've taken classes in that. And I, you know, I enjoyed those. Like, okay, let's do that. And so, and I hear this here at the UO as well, amongst some of the athletes of, you know, they go into sociology because classes transfer or, you know, or whatever that might be. And um, and it just felt kind of like I I was, I felt very fortunate that I landed that way <laughs> that one day in the office. And, and I loved it. And being in Fresno, um, 
you know, I got to see a lot more. I had fantastic undergraduate professors there um, who, uh, you know, had us go on assignments of kind of visualizing social inequalities and kind of looking at neighborhoods and disparities between different parts of the city. And that got me thinking spatially um, and, and how you know, uh, privileges and disadvantages are really reflected in the landscape quite literally. And, um, and in the process then can further kind of shape uh, experiences of social inequality and, and privilege. Um, and so that, that was eye-opening. Um, and, um, and then, and so I was playing there and uh, at Fresno and I, I had walked on. And um, so I was not on scholarship and, um, but I had walked on and earned the starting position as a catcher. And a week or so before the season was supposed to start, um, I shattered my thumb and um, on, my, on my throwing hand. And that was kind of, that was, I was at like probably the best I had ever, like I was playing and you know, I had some scouts that were interested in, in talking with um, kind of, you know, um, giving me suggestions and kind of, I was kind of heard also through the grapevine that I had been on some lists. And then once that happened, I just kind of wasn't the same after that. It took a long time to recover. I sat out that season, but I really, and then I, came back and played it um, sparingly <laughs> the next couple of years. But um, that that moment, you know, it's kind of the, we have those in our life where um, things fundamentally change. And I just went with, you know, what was really inter uh, of interest to me at that time with sociology. And, um, and being in the Central Valley of California, there's a lot of, uh, in San Joaquin Valley in particular, there's a lot of work um, around air quality and environmental health issues. And so with my, you know, and things I kind of took for granted actually when I was, I grew up on the central coast of California where, um, you know, there's concerns about pesticides and um, farm worker communities kind of um, experiencing environmental health problems, but um, that hadn't been on the radar as much. Um, though I was concerned about farm workers and that kind of overlaps some with my father's and, um, family background and everything but um uh but being in the central valley in san joaquin um you know we'd go to um we'd give some baseball clinics and those kind of things or dress up in our uniform and I remember going to the children's hospital um in madera which um it's one of the like it's a very prominent uh, and it's it's important um hospital and providing care and respiratory for respiratory illnesses and other kind of illnesses for youth um, and just seeing kids um, who look like me or more darker complected but also across the kind of racial spectrum um, uh, just hooked up to respirators and those kind of things and you know the, the things that kind of gave them hope were seeing us in uniforms but for us it was like seeing them persevering um, was like you know could give, give us hope and so I think that changed me a lot. And um, based while I still, and I still <laughs> like baseball a lot and I'm coaching my son's first grade baseball team, I think um, those kind of very real um, material kind of inequalities and like threats to livelihoods, I think, and as they relate to social inequalities just really resonated. And so I ended up pursuing that further and, you know, baseball didn't work out, but I went on to a graduate school at UC Davis. And so that was kind of the, but I always go back to that point at Fresno, a lot of stuff, you know, things just crystallized um, and kind of life-changing moments. And I think that was the really important uh, experience and kind of set me on to where I am now.
Yeah, so that's a really interesting story. I love the the, the way that chance or maybe it's destiny played a role in where you ended up. But so so you as all you've already started to make clear you are an environmental sociologist. Mm -hmm. So first of all, how do you understand what it means to be an environmental soci sociologist? Mm -hmm. What's what's significant about that field? What's important about that field? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean the I mean, as a sociologist first, so kind of the, the putting sociology in it first is really um, a concern about kind of our group memberships and right how um, you know to some extent like you know we have some agency in our identities that we can construct, but oftentimes are constructed by others, right? I mean, we're born into this world and we have this whole other kind of ways of relating to each other that already predate us and we get socialized into that. And I think, um, you know, as, as kind of sharing my own background, but um, in, in that, you know, having that perspective as sociologists, then we think that, okay, well, the types of groups that we're connected to, both as we define ourselves and others define us, Right, really shapes then our experiences of opportunities and constraints and um, in a number of institutional contexts. And so I've focused a lot of that and I really kind of, um, you know, thinking about what is an institution, right? Kind of these um, kind of established rules and patterns of practice, right? That we, um, that we follow and um, in a number of different contexts whether it be, you know, government or political sphere, sphere or in economics or science or medicine, right? And all those, institutional context, education system, law, right? That um, they really kind of, they provide these templates for how different groups are seen and the types of advantages or disadvantages that they get. Um, and so that's kind of some basic premises within sociology. And then you think about the environment then, and these really great, I mean, Alan Schneber is a fantastic, uh, you know, unfortunately not with this anymore, but um, environmental sociologist who many have cited in terms of, you know, a question, you know, kind of thinking about inequalities, right? And so um, I'm gonna paraphrase, but this standard quote of, right, um, of, you know, the, the environment is kind of out there. It's, you know, there's questions about, you know, protecting the environment, but given, you know, where we are and our kind of our status and our kind of the group memberships we have often shape our experiences of the environment, right? And he says it more eloquently than that, but, um, so you have that aspect of kind of, right, you can't really point to the environment as protected, right? It's a question about for whom and for what, I think is actually more closer to the, the, the quote he's um, attributed to him and folks like David Pello and other folks who I've, and Julie Z and other um, faculty I had at UC Davis, I think have really been influential along with uh, Robert uh, Bullard and Dorcita Taylor and other sociologists who have been really um, influential within and both kind of looking at those types of inequalities in our experience in the environment and different types of, um, of political agency and resources that are that are channeled into particular types of environmentalisms um, uh, that then also reflect these inequalities right and so it's it's really a question about power and inequality and you know for whom and for what is the environment protected um, are really kind of questions I have and you know that goes very much often goes back to right just thinking about that those experiences in Madeira and saying okay you know these kids on the respiratory um, you know, hooked up to kind of respiratory support and it's like um, you know think and think about the San Joaquin Valley and, and those kind of things or even um, you know my uh, where my dad grew up in uh, very working class Mexican American Tucson of the types of um, you know, occupational ha health hazards near their community and 
um, mining pollution and that kind of stuff. And, um, and so that's really what I'm concerned, you know, for whom and for what is the environment protected, who has authority over environmental policy making. And um, I was fortunate to really have some fantastic mentors at Davis that really um, helped me kind of pursue those questions. So let's talk about a specific case that you've worked on. So you've written about the water crises in Flint, Michigan, and in, and in the San Joaquin Valley. Mm-hmm. So why did why is it why was it good to compare those two cases? And what did you find? What were some of the findings by that through that comparison? Yeah, and so that's um, so my kind of the the broader and very like abstract kind of um, theoretical questions I'm interested in is you know questions about risk and. Um, and threats, right, and how they're unequally distributed, and um, and the spatial di- dimensions of that, right. And so, and th- part of that was an opportunity to connect kind of research I had done on the Flint water crisis. That you know, there's so many others who are in Flint and in Michigan, both have colleagues there and others who I've read their work that are just doing fantastic community engaged work. Jennifer Carrera, Michael Masquerainhas, um, so many folks that are really there with the people and part of that project we're doing with Flint with um, Claire Rosenfeld Evans and Ryan Light in our department um, were to kind of um, apply some um, kind of techniques that I've been doing in spatial analysis along with think about intersectionality right of like so that we have kind of taking a step back there with the, the Flint water crisis right we get a lot of um, reports about and um, and uh, academic and also in the public sphere and you know there's um, you know legal cases and all that's come that's brought all this to light of just how much systemic racism um, against Flint and being a predominantly black city and also low income um, really contributed to the crisis and how it would how folks were perceived and the extent of supports that they were given and not given um, uh, right and contributing to the the pollution of the, the water there and the illnesses that resulted um, but one of the questions that in thinking, looking at all these other kind of analyses of, um, you know, um, that we're finding, right, kind of disparate studies that, well, there's also, it's also a story about single parent families um, and um, single parent families are predominantly mother headed, right, and female headed households uh, within that. So that brings the question then about, okay, well, race seems to matter, obviously, and then these other kind of studies are looking at family structure and gender. And, and so we wanted to explore that. And we had some other kind of aspects of our study that didn't pan out. We wanted to look more about uh, into kind of the media response and how social media was used um, or the extent to which it could be used to kind of understand um, kind of emergent environmental health threats. And that got complicated by using Twitter and how that could be. So we went this route and, um, and we ended up finding at you know, a very small scale of analysis um, at the block level that um, you know major predictor of um, uh, that blocks would be exposed to uh, lead service lines was the extent of uh, single parent um, or single father black families and single mother Latina families which really doesn't right and so that was you don't see that in the headlines you don't see that a lot of the conversation but it gets into you know kind of um, what I think sociologists I'm hoping can offer is to kind of, okay, how do we think about these kind of intersecting kind of inequalities and how do they manifest spatially and how does that translate into our unequal experience of the environment? And so from there, um, one of my mentors uh, who I still collaborate with, um, uh, Julie Z, uh, she and I kind of 
picked up on some of that, uh, those insights and thought more historically. Um, and, and, um, and it was for this uh, edited volume. Um, that actually, <laughs> right here, um, uh, urban emergency mismanagement, right? And the crisis of neoliberalism. So we had an opportunity to contribute to that uh, book. And, um, uh, and I had been doing this work on Stockton and, and uh, Julie has been continuing to do work on the Central Valley that, you know, that I collaborated with her in graduate school. And so we had this opportunity to kind of think about the comparison and with the Stockton case, um, there had been, uh, um, you know, uh, um, as we're seeing in the headlines right now, if, you, if, I don't know if you've been looking at um, some of the, um, you know, just the, the current drought in the, in the uh, in California, particularly within San Joaquin Valley. So Stockton's at uh, the northern portion of the San Joaquin Valley and it stretches all the way down to Bakersfield. And so there's a lot of rural communities who their water systems are drying up. Um, they're having to get bottled water um, from the stores and, right. Um, and so um, there's these kind of, it's interesting when we have these kind of disasters, similarly with Katrina and other kind of disasters, Flint being one, you know, there's these, it becomes a reference category, right? Of, okay, we're experiencing this water crisis. Is it like Flint? Um, and you see that in a number of cases, Hurricane Katrina, disasters, flooding, is it like New Orleans? Um, and so we kind of use that as an opportunity to just look at what, what had been going on in Stockton about water privatization, um, kind of water infrastructure. And, um, and there had, been concerns about privatizing that water there, um, and um, uh, what the implications would be for water provision and water quality. And one thing we ended up finding out is that some of the kind of concerns about um, poor water quality were actually kind of being concentrated more in the privileged areas of Stockton. Um, and so we kind of use that case study um, and kind of zooming out of the, in the Flint case to just look more at race and class kind of inequalities and, and how neighborhoods were developed and then ex uh, exposed to elevated uh, you know, water lead levels and um, blood lead levels that others had detected um, to kind of think through, okay, how do you know these kind of risks um, and around water and water kind of quality how do they unfold unevenly across different cities and how does that relate to how those cities are racially segregated uneven developed right and how there's these kind of unequal patterns of capital investment um, within neighborhoods um, and going back decades back to you know pretty much the, the kind of common point uh, was around the 1930s following the great depression where new deal legislation was put in that really started to standardize real estate appraisal and, uh, and uh, federal mortgage insurance, right? And then contributed to redlining and things that had been documented. Um, and so uh, we, that's for kind of our starting point for those cases. So we start from that, that um, kind of disaster context, right? I mean, <laughs> Great Depression, we can conceptualize that as a disaster. And then think then about how subsequent phases of urban development um, went through these periods of crises and then um, a decreasing investment from the state and more, um, uh, more uh, an increasing turn to um, private um, mechanisms, uh, um, which right, uh, market mechanisms, voluntary incentives and those kind of things and uh, corporate kind of uh, provision of uh, water services and those kind of things that, um, Right, or critique for not necessarily being about maybe the, you know, the, the bottom line, right, is perhaps a little different than environmental health and protection and social justice, right, 
there's also profit motive involved. And so, um, and also a different kind of configuration of kind of responsibilities by state agencies and uh, municipalities and private entities. And so, so we just tracked that and what, we're, what we found is um, kind of a, a complex story of uh, how kind of patterns that were of uh, unequal capital investment that are very much racially biased Right, ended up contributing to concentrating hazards within Flint amongst low-income um, communities of color. But in the Stockton case, it actually kind of had this unexpected boomerang effect of a, of a disadvantaged, segregated South Side getting um, uh, um, a lot of other threats to their livelihood and well-being throughout their history. But then, in this context of water privatization, much of actually the the threat of poor water quality was then being distributed to um, a more privileged part of the city um, in the North End. Um, and so it was kind of a, a, a kind of a, a way to kind of compare and, and kind of think about complexity and some of these outcomes um, and right how this broader problem about how we um, uh, or how environmental health protections and uh, social services are distributed and, and perhaps like what, what is it, what, you know, when we see an increasing turn towards private provision and privatized services, is that, is it what people say, the proponents of it? Is it really gonna contribute to more efficient distribution of services or, right? Or is it gonna have these other outcomes that are not desirable and they're also unequal, um, uh, which then contributes as, and, and I've, I've been, working on Stockton for quite a while back to my dissertation. And so one thing kind of finding in that the Flint case, right, is that those exacerbation of inequalities then also are contributing to a breakdown of community to some extent, right, between groups, divisions, um, and in a context where so much of our country is very divided, these kind of questions help us to kind of think through, I think some of those, those concerns that are constantly pressing for us. Um, so it's kind of a meandering response to that, but that you know that's kind of how we got to that uh, study and some key insights that we had. So it was extremely interesting. So let's talk a little bit more about um, your work on Stockton. And you mentioned, as in the previous answer, you know, my sense is, I mean, you you mentioned intersectionality, the intersectional quality of your approach, and in the in the case of the water crises, your results complicated a kind of older model of uh, the way inequality has been thought about in the United States, which is really around the black white binary. Mm -hmm. And um, you one of the things that you've studied and, and you mentioned it in passing was what what redlining looked like in Stockton, which is entirely different than it looks like in you know in an eastern east coast black white kind of example. So tell us a little bit about your findings. You've already begun to talk about your findings about the history of redlining in Stockton and how that complicates this black white binary uh, and and any other key uh, findings that you found in that. Yeah, I mean that really and um, again I, I just it's funny these. Um, Kind of the origins of some of these works really do stem from really great mentoring I had. So, um, uh, you know, now and faculty that we've had here or who are here at one point. So, um, and kind of thinking about this, this kind of think about it as a relational approach. And so, um, uh, to looking at race and racial inequalities and intersecting inequalities. And um, that's really, you know, Dan Hosang Martinez, who was here now left to Yale. He was uh, someone who 
when I came um, here in 2016, um, my prior, my first tenure track position was at Washington State University. Um, and Dan really, you know, um, I had shared some of my dissertation work and, you know, he just reached out and, and we're, we're talking about it. And, um, and uh, he's also someone who worked with Laura Polito uh, from when he was in grad school. And now we have Laura Polito here. <laughs> um, and I think with the two of them, um, I've both benefited from reading Laura's work um, who on, in, in, uh, who has really kind of helped to, to bring this kind of spatial thinking to racial inequalities. But, and when we think about space, right, it's relational, right? Of you hear real estate agents, right? Location, location, location. Well, it's all location of this place in relation to others, right? And, um, and, uh, and so I think, um, so when we're studying those kind of inequalities inherently about relations and uh, reference groups and reference spaces and, so I really took those um, insights, you know, and I really benefited from conversations with both Dan and Laura um, about that. And then of course, reading their work. Um, but through talking with Dan, then I got to kind of participate in another edited volume that helped me kind of look back at my dissertation data that I went back all the way to the late 1800s um, to think about the development of Stockton and um, how hierarchies were starting to be established. Um, um, through different waves of immigration and a very diverse setting that necessitates thinking about all these different racial and ethnic groups that are coming into, you know, a West Coast uh, port city like that. Um, and so, you know, of, of reading that history of looking at, okay, the experience of indigenous folks there to Chinese, you know, strong anti-Chinese sentiment, right, uh, in California and, um, and exploitation and looking at the Japanese experience during World War II. Um, and then thinking, you know, through that context, then a, conti a continuous and kind of back and forth um, kind of power dynamic uh, with Mexican-Americans within Stockton and, and more increasing more South and Central Americans um, against a, a very diverse white ethnic population within there and, and hierarchies within it. And so of just reading that history, and this is um, one thing I think sociologists would really focus on is, or at least we have, a, I think, um, the work that I've seen, and I think we definitely have a, a strong um, approach to this here in our department is to really stay close to the data and, and okay, we have this history necessitates right thinking outside a, a black white paradigm that could apply in in midwest cities east coast cities to some extent um not history and so in looking at the stockton case and looking at um, redlining there um i kind of use that as a case study kind of think through this conceptually but then also this other story about redlining right that it was following the Great Depression in the 1930s, that was predominantly black neighborhoods, but also Jewish neighborhoods, but that has been documented, right, were um, uh, right, denied, the, 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 I should say the neighborhoods that are predominantly black or Jewish or low income, right, were denied, had higher uh, mortgage uh, loan denial rates um, and that they were redlined and they were seen as hazardous, right? And, um, uh, and the Stockton case kind of helps, right, kind of think then about, okay, well, those, those that's part of the story, but then the 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 way that neighborhood appraisals were developing at that time, that there was this yellow category and a blue and a green um, that reflected how neighborhoods were being graded in relation to their um, investment worthiness that was seen by federal um, underwriters, the home mortgage homeowners loan corporation, I should say. 
um, who are actually trained by sociologists. And so and I talk about this in my urban class, um, right, it's kind of this reflexive approach on, on sociology as well, right, that these really discriminatory um, appraisals um, came from really dominant kind of urban ecological thinking in sociology, uh, uh, questions about neighborhood decline, um, invasion and succession, um, discourse we still hear today where it wrapped up around immigration debate and um, conspiracy theories and things. So these things aren't new by any means that we're seeing today. Um, but in this context, right, of, of kind of the state becoming increasingly uh, right, concerned about protecting their um, the mortgages that they're underwriting, right? Now that at that time, that's where the 30-year the fixed interest loan comes from, um, is that then they establish this very um, uh, technical, um, I should say systematic approach to grading neighborhood investment risk. And um, so again, going back to this idea of risk and how that's just shaped and structures our housing markets um, and notions of worthiness and desirability. Um, but in the Stockton case, kind of one thing I found is, yes, strong anti-Black racism really influenced how neighborhoods were downgraded and seen as most hazardous or redlined. But then there's a gradation from still declining, which is, or I should say declining, which is the yellow category that was given to blue, which is still desirable. They would talk about it as like the 1935 Oldsmobile in the, in the appraisals um, versus the green neighborhoods um, that were the elite and the first grade. and their gradation in the real estate market really reflected also um, racial um, hierarchies that are, we have a national at that time, strong anti-Black racism throughout all of real estate. And you see in all these case studies, but then that gets fitted locally depending on the established hierarchies there. And that's something that Laura Plato really wrote a lot about, right? How that national racial narrative fits to the local. And that's, there's particularities. So the Stockton one, it's, very diverse and it fits onto this um you know uh, racial hierarchy that was very much predicated on indigenous erasure but also marginalization of um, chinese um particularly at that time period uh and um and then but also uh around mexican americans and even italians were kind of seen as an investment threat um and that speaks to how Southeast, uh, uh, Southeast Europeans were also, right, their experience of inequalities and, and segregation at that time, and then Jewish folks as well, and, um, and Arab um, immigrants within the area. Um, but that defining line, it was really that strong anti-Black racism, but that we can't understand that without knowing how that anti-Black racism was um, inscribed and institutionalized in the, those neighborhood appraisals without seeing how it was, happened quite literally and saying, okay, this place isn't as bad, as bad, or, you know, isn't as risky as this other one because they have a more desirable racial group or, you know, and, and then they look at how that intersected often with class and they talk about, you know, laborers versus capitalists. And so um, one thing that's kind of interesting and in looking back on that now is some kind of models of neighborhood um, investment patterns that we still see today where in the Stockton case, the places that were green and most highly invested in were those around the university and the University of the Pacific. Um, and there's racially restrictive covenants that were put in place to make sure that people of color could not own the land there. And that helped then reinforce that uh, exclusivity. Um, and so when, you know, looking around and 
you know, talking to the students and just being reflexive around the UO and just other universities. I've seen this in Philadelphia, lectured at Drexel University and my doctorate, I was working on my doctorate of, you know, there's important questions about the type of development we see in university towns where, you know, what's going on around the university and how that might impact the community. And I haven't explored that um, systematically here, but it's hard not to notice. <laughs> um, and the students definitely notice it, right? And they're thinking about their rents and everything. Um, and so, yeah, so that's that's kind of what I you know, found in the Stockton case. And, and then those grades became very influential. And as I'm working on and slowly but surely making progress on um, the book project is to then look at how, and I've written about this in some other contexts that I've published, but then how those neighborhood appraisals at that very important time then really set the stage for future development and many of those redlined areas, then um, their, their extent of um, land use became very much industrial and that contributed to then them becoming sites of heightened environmental health threats and also poor flood protections and food insecurity and toxic exposures. And then also um, according to some analyses, um, a greater likelihood of exposure to sea level rise with climate change. And so um, that history, right? We think it's gone, but we still live it and we see right, how it's important today. And so that's something I'm very, really concerned with. And in my dissertation, I had looked at and I'm more systematically kind of revisiting these analyses, but then how groups responded to it. So I did a lot of interviews and, um, you know, how folks chose what kind of um, threat to mobilize against when there's so many that they're facing. And one thing that keeps coming up is how salient that racial history and exclusion continues to be and how they um, think about the problem, how they seek to organize um, and the types of uh, solutions that they want to pursue. Um, that's just a continuing significance of race is always there, it seems like. Yep. So Raul, um, we've come to the end of our time. Thank you so much for talking to us about your very interesting and important work. And I'm especially want to emphasize that last point you made about the enduring implications of history on the present. I think this is one of the many reasons why studying the humanities and the humanistic social sciences is so crucial. We have to we have to uncover and recover that history to understand where we are and where we might go. Yeah. Good luck on that book project. It sounds completely fascinating. Thank you so much for taking the time uh, to speak with us today. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you, Paul. Appreciate it. I've been speaking with Raul Lee Evanos, uh, Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of Oregon. Thanks, as always, for watching. Mm -hmm.